That anger may not get expressed in public, in front of white co-workers or white friends, but it does find voice in the barber shop or the beauty shop around the kitchen table. At times, that anger is exploited by politicians to gin up votes along racial lines or to make up for a politician's own failings. And occasionally, it finds voice in the church on Sunday morning, in the pulpit and in the pews. Have you ever felt a visceral attraction to a politician? There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. I am your voice. Ask yourself if they're really telling the truth. This is a secret innuendo being leaked out there about me. I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting. This is Subliminally Correct, a podcast where we examine all the ways politicians and newsmakers are using psychological tactics to influence you every single day. And now, join myself, Taylor Sherman, certified hypnosis instructor and executive coach, along with my co-host, Alex Dobranek, political consultant and certified consulting hypnotist, on this episode of Subliminally Correct. And welcome to another episode of Subliminally Correct. What do we have up for today, Alex? Well, today we are continuing our series on historical speeches. And once again, we are continuing to cover Obama's 2008 speech, A More Perfect Union. And in this speech, we are talking about how Obama used a lot of very interesting rhetorical tactics to talk about his race and the Reverend Wright controversy that he was entangled in. You'll hear from our special guest, Tracy Denian Sharpley Whiting, and she's a Gertrude Conaway Vanderbilt Distinguished Professor of Humanities at Vanderbilt University and chair of the Department of African American and Diaspora Studies and the editor of the anthology, The Speech, Race and Obama's More Perfect Union. And welcome to the show again, Tracy. Thank you. Thank you for having me again. Now, you'll hear some of uh, what we've been talking about in our last episode. So if you haven't listened to that, I want everyone listening to the show right now to press pause, go back, listen to the last episode, and now join us again for even more interesting discussion of this speech with Tracy. Now, Tracy, we uh, you know wanted to hear a little bit more about your book and sort of how it uh, lays the context around this speech and some of the thought around it. And if you can give us a quick description um, and some of the um, uh, some of the conclusions, I think maybe that you might have drawn from this that might give our listeners a little bit more context and and general information about the the broader thinking of uh, of what academics are saying about this. So the book itself, it's it's uh, twelve essays um, besides the introduction um, that I offer, um, and um, of varying approaches to the speech. Uh, some coming at it from the perspective of how the, how it was heard in the South. Um, um, we have a journalist who's included who was following the Obama campaign and was and kind of was giving updates um, along the way. And so we put his kind of clips in there, his, um, his write-ups of what was happening um, during that moment um, as kind of breaks between the essays, um, the kind of formal essays. Um, 
And I think overall, the introduction kind of sets the tone and sets up the idea that like most of Obama's speeches um, that he had given up until, you know, in the lead up um, to the speech itself, all dealt with these questions of an inclusive American identity and democracy um, and we the people. Um, that was always uh, a part of the Obama narrative. Um, and so it was important to set that forward, but it also gives a bit more background on how Obama got to where um, he, um, he was or is um, at that particular moment with respect to the, first, the audacity of hope um, work as well as dreams, dreams of my father. And so, um, and his discussion of what it was like to be a black man in the United States. I think you see what Obama is presenting. And I think most um, of your listeners, um, he is borrowing deeply from um, W.E.B. Du Bois's um, um, discussion of the American Negro having the gift of second sight. And so it is not unique to Obama with respect to his being black and white, uh, having this background, although he frames it in this very fascinating way politically in order to appeal to white voters. Du Bois himself talks about the American Negro having to live, be, live beyond the, behind the veil, but also observe white America and therefore having an intimate familiarity with white people in which white people themselves don't have the same sort of intimate familiarity with black people, but it allows black folk to have a certain gift of second sight. Um, and so Obama borrows strategically from that particular um, framing um, of the veil, as well as the second sightness that he explicitly ties to his multiracial background. Um, and whereas Du Bois was more so looking at it from the perspective of most black people would have it, primarily because they are forced um, to reckon with white people on the regular anyway. Um, and so they're going to have more insight into white people's thinking and feeling, et cetera, than white people will have of um, them. And so, so they will become unknowable to white people, but they're very known to black people. And this is what Obama is exploiting in a very interesting way throughout that speech, throughout his campaign, that he is, he is gifted with second sight because he sits right at the crucible. Uh, he sits on the racial line. Right. I think that that's a great point. And a lot of what we'll get to in this section here, because I think in, in, in these sections, he uses a little bit of that code switching and double speak in a way that he's able to frame it in a way to make a white person feel as though they're missing out on something, that they've missed out on this portion of the black experience that now Obama is going to teach them about and brings them into it in a way that uh, allows them to be more receptive of those ideas. At the same time, he's speaking to black listeners about something that they already know and that they already have a relationship with. And it's almost like a, a preaching to the choir, like keep going, like teach them, preach. And uh, it, it's a way for him to be inclusive of both sides uh, in a way that I don't think any other politician really could have pulled off. The characterization is is quite accurate because what we're dealing with with the black audience, because it is he has to he has to hold on to that African-American base. Right. That is the base of his coalition building. And so with them, it's a call and response. Right. Um, and so they are responding to his acknowledgement of those um, 
those issues that Wright raised in a different sort of way. He does that call and response in a way that I think is not always readily apparent to the white listener. You know, he's he's kind of operating at multiple levels here, you know, multi-level communication. So in giving a message that is on one surface, you know, um, being able to tamp down the fears of white Americans and at the same time using certain words and certain phrases that, you know, the black community is going to really resonate with that, you know, we heard that in the last episode where he was talking at the beginning about how he has within his family um, people of every race and every hue. Well, just that word hue is something that is much more heard in terms of the literature or within the community of African-Americans than would be, um, you know, that within a white community. And so even just little words like that shows understanding of his base and kind of acknowledges them that, you know what, we're going to be talking for a little bit here about um, some of these other things, but just know that I'm still talking to you. And so, you know, it's, it's really amazing how he's able to do that. So we're going to listen to some more moments of this. Um, but before we get into some more clips here, since we know that you enjoy this type of um, political persuasion, this deep dive into discussion that we're doing, Alex and I would like you to consider supporting our mission here. So time is running out to support the show this month, which means that it's now time to chip in. Each month we have server costs as well as the time spent developing the show. And to protect our independence, we never run ads. Your support today keeps us on the air tomorrow and it keeps this great content coming to you. So please take just one minute to keep the show on the air ad-free and growing. You can find the link in the show notes as well as going to our website at subliminallycorrect.com and clicking the support us tab. Now, we're going to be continuing with this clip here. We're going to be hearing Obama talk about um, the Trinity Church, how it embodies the black community in its entirety. And we're going to be hearing him having that second sight, having that second vision that Tracy was just talking about. Let's take a listen. Like other predominantly black churches across the country, Trinity embodies the black community in its entirety, the doctor and the welfare mom the model student and the former gangbanger. Like other black churches, Trinity's services are full of raucous laughter and sometimes bawdy humor. They are full of dancing and clapping and screaming and shouting that may seem jarring to the untrained ear. The church contains in full the kindness and cruelty, the fierce intelligence and the shocking ignorance the struggles and successes, the love, and yes, the bitterness and biases that make up the black experience in America. And this helps explain, perhaps, my relationship with Reverend Wright. As imperfect as he may be, he has been like family to me. He strengthened my faith, officiated my wedding, and baptized my children. Not once in my conversations with him have I heard him talk about any ethnic group in derogatory terms or treat whites with whom he interacted with anything but courtesy and respect. He contains within him the contradictions, the good and the bad, 
of the community that he has served diligently for so many years. I can no more disown him than I can disown the black community. I can no more disown him than I can disown my white grandmother, a woman who helped raise me, a woman who sacrificed again and again for me, a woman who loves me as much as she loves anything in this world, but a woman who once confessed her fear of black men who passed her by on the street and who on more than one occasion has uttered racial or ethnic stereotypes that made me cringe. These people are part of me, and they are part of America, this country that I love. Wow, Kieran, we've just got some powerful imagery and some powerful language from candidate Obama. And what's interesting here is that this is the moment where he is making the uh, the listener have this level of empathy with him and what he's describing. And by, you know, transitive property, Reverend Wright, we've got, you know, a black listener listening to this right here might be empathizing with, you know, all of the uh, glory and flaws of the black community and black churches and everything that goes on, um, you know, within the broader black community. And at the same time, he's speaking to white listeners in a way that this is something that's been going on in the black community that you might not have known about, but this is what it is. And, uh, you know, it's something that you don't know is happening and uh, and and keep an open mind to, you know, what is happening here. And he's going to be digging further into that in the clips that we're going to play going on here. And he's approaching it in a way that is sort of an open door and is inviting the listener to uh, empathize with uh, with the players in his world and within this community. For example, that story about his white grandmother. And this is probably the most written about section of the entire speech right here, where this invites the white listener into Obama's life, where they probably know somebody or them themselves can relate with the white grandmother and how he still embraces her uh, with what she's done. And it's a, a wonderful way for him to uh, to wrap up another person in that experience in an inviting and welcoming way. Well, yeah, I think um, it's very, very, again, uh, strategic in how he, he, he moves the players on the board to allow different audiences to see what's going on with the grandmother. Um, most white Americans know that they have someone who is in their family who has said pretty abhorrent things, um, you know, um, politically, and you would not necessarily want to bring whatever sorts of friends around, but their family, right? And this is what he's saying. I cannot disown him, disowning him, you know, because of something he said, you know, in this speech, in this sermon. Um, I would then have to turn to disown my grandmother, who has said things that are actually racist and that are directed at me. I embody the very thing that she says she fears. Right. Um, and so he's like, I could not do that. And so asking me, because that's what some political pundits were saying he should do. Um, asking me to do so would be like, would, would be the equivalent of asking you to disown one of your family members. Um, and so I think in that moment, people could, 
whites in particular could see themselves in that situation where, yeah, you know, my father said this, my brother said that, but you know, that's family. And I love them flaws and all. Um, and so, yeah, he was definitely garnering empathy there. I think from the black community and the description, what Obama was attempting to do was also say, listen, white America, cause you're listening. Um, black people are entitled to be as complex, complex and complicated as white people. So if black people have hold a set of divisive views and biases, et cetera, et cetera, and white people are, ha you know, have them as well. Why are white people any more entitled to have these views than black people who have been on the receiving end of over 200 years of oppression in the United States? So I think he all that. So in that move, he did a very clever thing. Right. And I don't know if most people understood that, but it really was a defense of black humanity and the complexity and complications um, of black humanity that they're entitled to have for black folks. That's what they heard. They also were sitting back in a kind of in a in a gesture most of. People are attempting to deny the first black man, the first African-American man, the presidency of the United States. We have to form a wall of support. Um, and so that's also what they were hearing um, in his rousing defense of black complexity and humanity. Yeah, he talks here this this moment where he's talking about his grandmother and, you know, you you can't imagine that his grandmother, when she when she's making these, um, you know, odious comments are talking about him in particular. Right. She's not making the comment and then thinking, oh, like Barack right in front of me is the person who I am, you know, saying this about. And yet as she makes the comments, you know, he's he's able to describe it this way and. He's doing something that in hypnosis we call separating behavior from intention. So being able to identify, okay, this is the behavior that she's doing, but then when we chunk up on the values and we get into, well, what is that person trying to do? It's not that their behavior is appropriate. It's not that we're going to condone that behavior or suggest that it can continue, we're simply going to understand it and understand it from the place of intention. What are they trying to do even when they're missing the mark? And, you know, this is actually what Obama's doing here throughout his whole speech. He starts off from the beginning about how America, it's the ideals, the promise of America versus the reality. You know, where, what is our intention? What is our ideal? And where are we actually missing the mark? Where are we not fulfilling that promise of reality? And so, you know, he's just he's going through multiple levels here. And this is what has made this speech so powerful is that he is talking about it as, well, number one, we're talking about the um, nation level, the, the United States of America level. We're talking about it on the level of race. We're also talking about it then on a personal level. And he brings it down now to Reverend Wright, and then he kind of ties Reverend Wright now to the grandmother. It's like, well, these are both people that I've been close to. I don't agree with all of their statements. And yet, I'm still going to be close to them, you know, for this reason of their intention, for the same reason that I am going to continue to be a patriotic American um, because I believe in the promise, if not necessarily the actual, you know, reality of it. Yeah, this is really important because Obama doesn't have to do any of this. 
he doesn't have to embrace Reverend Wright. He could have done the most politically expedient thing of uh, completely disowning him, but instead embraces him and instead continues um, to double down, but um, in a way that really emphasizes sort of the genuineness of his character is able to do it in such a nuanced way that he can broaden the scope and really create a compelling moment where everybody is welcome to empathize and uh, join in in Obama's experience here. Now, in this next clip here, um, we're going to hear him um, first. Uh, we're skipping ahead um, through a portion of the speech where Obama is reviewing the history of racism in America. And so he reviews the the history of racism and all of the current inequalities that exist in America right now. And then he's going to begin using this as an explanation for context around Reverend Wright's behavior. So let's begin right at this moment. This is the reality in which Reverend Wright and other African-Americans of his generation grew up. They came of age in the late 50s and early 60s, a time when segregation was still the law of the land an opportunity was systematically constricted. What's remarkable is not how many failed in the face of discrimination, but how many men and women overcame the odds, how many were able to make a way out of no way for those like me who would come after them. But for all those who scratched and clawed their way to get a piece of the American dream, there were many who didn't make it. Those who were ultimately defeated, in one way or another, by discrimination. That legacy of defeat was passed on to future generations. Those young men and increasingly young women who we see standing on street corners or languishing in our prisons without hope or prospects for the future. Even for those blacks who did make it, questions of race and racism continue to define their worldview in fundamental ways. For the men and women of Reverend Wright's generation, the memories of humiliation and doubt and fear have not gone away, nor is the anger and the bitterness of those years. That anger may not get expressed in public, in front of white co-workers or white friends, but it does find voice in the barber shop or the beauty shop around the kitchen table at times, that anger is exploited by politicians to gin up votes along racial lines or to make up for a politician's own failings. And occasionally, it finds voice in the church on Sunday morning, in the pulpit and in the pews. Yeah, so the great part that really catches me in this section is when he says you know, that anger may not get expressed in public in front of white coworkers or white friends, but does find a voice in the barber shop or beauty shop around the kitchen table. And occasionally it finds its voice at the church on Sunday morning. And here it's that clever tactic of essentially saying, you know, this speech may be jarring to white people who are hearing it for the first time, but this is what black people have been saying for years. And what he's doing is forcing the white listener to question their own experiences and perceptions of reality by inserting doubt about whether they have been missing out on something. And at the same time, he's building rapport with the black listeners by reinforcing something that they already knew to be true and speaking publicly 
to white listeners a truth that they have been perhaps afraid to say themselves. And so it's a great way for him to, you know, be the this this avatar for the black listener to uh, step into and 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 believe that he's speaking for them. And at the same time, for white listeners to feel as though, oh, this is something that I had no idea about. And, you know, maybe my experiences are completely wrong. Um, and and that's what's so masterful about what he's doing here. Right. And he doesn't, of course, um, wag the finger at them by saying, how could you have been blind to this? I mean, because the reality is, is racism is systemic, that it's all around. And so in his listeners for hearing it for the first time, it's kind of like, you know, the, the white American listener hearing it for the first time articulated in this way, and even Obama re-articulating it in a way that is uh, much more um, palatable, um, much easier to digest. Um, it's a shock, actually, for many of the black listeners. Is like, how could you not have seen what is in front of you? Um, and so again, um, Obama is, is, there's the kind of double consciousness, again, the Du Boisian double consciousness, the second sightedness that he's bringing um, to that unfamiliar um, listener, voter, um, who actually, uh, there's a subtle kind of critique, like how could, you know, around naivete, right, uh, around the idea of white innocence. Um, and so that is actually what Obama is putting on um, display this idea of white innocence um, as as and questioning like you know how could you not have seen um, what do you really think are the explanations for these people who've been locked out of certain systems why is the why is there a prison industrial complex um, that's been built on the blacks of blacks in certain ways how do you think the country um, the labor that was given in, the, you know, in the earliest parts of the country for free built that was the engine for the um, economy in this country. What, you know, what were you thinking all of this time? Um, and so I think that he is, he's very instructive, but he is not admonishing. Um, and in a way in which Wright, of course, was admonishing. Yeah, he's really going and acknowledging the points of these various groups. And what I hear Obama here doing again and again and again is pacing particular parts of his audience, you know, whether that be the white listeners, whether that be the um, black listeners, he paces them, their reality of what they're talking about. But then he shifts to another thing. So he keeps doing this. He goes in and out throughout this entire speech, really layering the meaning so that different people can hear different things through it and, you know, continuing to give a very full explanation. And so he's able to really insert those ideas like what Tracy was just talking about here and at the same time be able to do so in at a level in which it appeals to people's values, you know, those core American values of you know, liberty and fairness and, you know, being able to have everyone um, being equal. And again, the promise versus the reality. And he's he's being able to acknowledge it at that level of value. And in that sense, people can then follow along with some of the specific points in which he's you know describing here. Now, in this next clip, what he's going to be getting into is some more pacing of that white portion of the audience. 
Um, but then he's really going to shift and kind of go on the attack. And actually here within this next clip is a particular, a particular moment in which he starts to talk about the black anger versus the white anger and how it has distracted us. And he kind of makes anger as the, as the villain here. Um, again, going to that kind of values and emotion based framework versus what is the, what is the logical explanation? Let's take a listen. In fact, a similar anger exists within segments of the white community. Most working and middle-class white Americans don't feel that they've been particularly privileged by their race. Their experience is the immigrant experience. As far as they're concerned, no one handed them anything. They've built it from scratch. They've worked hard all their lives, many times only to see their jobs shipped overseas or their pensions dumped after a lifetime of labor. They are anxious about their futures, and they feel their dreams slipping away. And in an era of stagnant wages and global competition, opportunity comes to be seen as a zero-sum game in which your dreams come at my expense. So when they are told to bus their children to a school across town, when they hear an African-American is getting an advantage in landing a good job or a spot in a good college because of an injustice that they themselves never committed. When they're told that their fears about crime in urban neighborhoods are somehow prejudiced, resentment builds over time. Like the anger within the black community, these resentments aren't always expressed in polite company, but they have helped shape the political landscape for at least a generation. Anger over welfare and affirmative action helped forge the Reagan coalition. Politicians routinely exploited fears of crime for their own electoral ends. Talk show hosts and conservative commentators built entire careers unmasking bogus claims of racism while dismissing legitimate discussions of racial injustice and inequality as mere political correctness or reverse racism. And just as black anger often proved counterproductive, so have these white resentments distracted attention from the real culprits of the middle class squeeze, a corporate culture rife with inside dealing, questionable accounting practices, and short-term greed, a Washington dominated by lobbyists and special interests, economic policies that favor the few over the many. And yet to wish away the resentments of white Americans, to label them as misguided or even racist without recognizing they are grounded in legitimate concerns, this too widens the racial divide and blocks the path to understanding. Yeah, so this section is just, uh, is really elegant the way that he, like Taylor said, pivots the anger um, and, and pivots the discussion from, you know, making one race the enemy or another race the enemy. What he does here is he makes anger the enemy. And then he redirects that anger towards the corporate culture that's toxic and the uh, the the greed essentially on 
perhaps Wall Street here, um, uh, maybe lays the ground for uh, Bernie Sanders. But, uh, but, you know, what he does here is he says that everybody's fighting amongst themselves. We're missing out on the real enemy that's really squeezing all of us. And so it, it's sort of like a little bit of a, a bait and switch here. You thought you were really angry about this stuff, but here's what you should actually be angry about. Yeah, and he does it in this way where he's really going after, of course, the people who would never vote for him, right? The Reagan coalition, the talk show hosts, the conservative commentators. And he, you know, he really go, goes, goes uh, into that you know, very strongly. Some of his phrases here are very interesting. So he has this idea of resentment builds over time. Well, you know, and he had just described about how, you know, the subjective experience of white Americans and the immigrant experience and hard work. And then he says resentment builds over time. Well, resentment, just that word, um, is a nominalization. So a nominalization is a verb, an action word that's been frozen in time, converted into a thing. It's a very highly abstracted word that you can't necessarily place a specific experience on. And so when people you're using these words, it gives them the ability to describe vast landscapes of experience without being nailed down to anything in particular. Resentment builds. How specifically does it build over time? What time specifically? So we have a very unspecified phrase here. Resentment builds over time. How does it do that? We don't necessarily know, but supposedly it's based on the things that he's been talking about but still, we don't know people's individual experience of this. And then I also noticed here he had this um, pattern when he was talking about as black anger often proved counterproductive, so, ha so have white resentments distracted attention from the real culprits of the middle class squeeze. Now, <laughs> I don't know exactly what he means by middle class squeeze, um, maybe that's the corporate inside dealings, the policies, the lobbyists, the special interests, the, the few versus the many, that contrast there that he puts in. Um, but as he says this, this is actually the what's called the as-so language pattern. I call this, when I'm uh, teaching about it, the metaphorical leap pattern. You know, as this, so that. And just as this has happened, so this has happened. It's a form of a cause and effect. And he is creating a line connecting those two ideas. And again, you know, what is the culprit? The culprit is the anger. It's not black versus white. Like you thought that was the thing. No, it's the black anger versus the white resentments. And, you know, really he brings it to a feeling level that then he's going to be able to stack all of his specific policy points and understandings upon and then people are going to agree with it, not because they necessarily agreed with him before, but because he has identified and acknowledged the emotion they are going through. And when he identifies and acknowledges that, they're more willing now to step into his way of viewing the world. Absolutely. That's precisely what he was trying to move white audiences, the white audience, listeners and voters to that understanding that he I understand you. Um, and I get you. Um, my grandfather had these experiences, um, these resentments. My grandmother um, dealt with, of course, sexism as well as whatever sorts of um, resentments she might have felt. 
um, being squeezed in it. And these were the causes, um, not the causes, not the reasons you thought, you know, these, this is how we've been played all along, but this is the real, um, these are the real culprits, um, of what you're feeling. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, he, he, he does a wonderful job in that, but this is probably the most problematic portion. Um, one of the most problematic portions of the, of the speech, um, primarily because of the way in which he makes white resentment the equivalent of structural racism um, that um, fosters black anger. Uh, and so, but strategically and politically, it was the move to make um, because what Obama clearly understands is that white folk at this particular moment need to be centered. They need to be heard. And if the only way to get them to hear what he's trying to say and pointing to the larger um, corporate structure, et cetera, that eventually he's going to have to bail out um, <laughs> with taxpayers' money, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> he, um, he at least has to move them from, you know, holding on to those petty kind of quibbles that politicians have exploited, right? And so when he brings up, you know, the, the, the Reagan coalition that was forged over anger about welfare and affirmative action, um, that again is very strategic because for black people, what that, what that says is, what are you angry about welfare for when, in fact, what it, this is racism that was operating. The Reagan coalition was exploiting kind of racist ideas and tropes around these policies when, in fact, more whites are on welfare even today than blacks, right? So then certainly that was the case um, of this particular entitlement program. Ditto with affirmative action, who were the greatest and who are continue to be the greatest beneficiaries of affirmative action. So he is very strategic even when he mentions that because he knows exactly what his black audience is also going to be responding to. Um, because he understands how these stereotypes have impacted that black listener and black voter as well. Um, so again, as he's giving life and giving voice to white resentments and acknowledging it, um, he's not saying racism, but that's precisely what's undergirding um, some of these resentments, the ways in which Ultimately, he's saying, and his black audience understands this, that um, the resentment of white folk are because they do feel that because they're white, they should be entitled to certain things. Um, and it is precisely because of competition from others, whether they be immigrants, blacks, or whatever, um, global competition, et cetera, um, that that is at the bottom what is what is happening at the bottom level. But he concedes, he allows that resentment to at least get an understanding. It's the same way when one deals with sexism. The world is topsy-turvy for a lot of men. They're competing with women in a way that they've never had to compete before. Um, and so one has to, on some level, say, I understand male resentment. It's got to be tough. It's not the way it was. And I have to ask, do you do you believe that Obama understands exactly what he's doing right here um, in, in the context of what you just said? I don't know if he understands. I think he I think he knows that the different audiences are going to listen to this in different ways. Um, I do think that it does take people 
like us to go through and unpack <laughs> exactly what is, you know. But I know I, I do think that he's very, he understands. He knows when he was saying the Reagan coalition because right he's tried to say that he's, he's he wanted to model himself around Reagan's kind of great communicator you know, um, status, right? He liked that part of Reagan. Um, so even as he's delivering this critique of Reagan, we understand that he's embracing, he embraces Reagan in other venues um, when it's strategically important to kind of talk about a communication style and an ability to bring Americans together um, around certain issues. Um, so yeah, I do think that he knows exactly how this is going to play to the, to the different audiences. Um, and so he's very, he's a very smart person and he's very strategic, but I do think that I don't, I don't think that he, he did know that more, I guess, progressive leaning black folks were going to deeply resent how he was attempting to conflate white resentment with structural racism. Now in this next clip, we're going to get to a story about Ashley Baya, a young woman, uh, a white volunteer for Obama's campaign in South Carolina, who, believe it or not, was actually my, my boss at one point um, on Obama's reelection campaign. Now, he's going to be telling her story and then uh, crouching it more in the story of Obama and the story of America. And let's take a listen. There's one story in particular that I'd like to leave you with today. A story I told when I had the great honor of speaking on Dr. King's birthday at his home church, Ebenezer Baptist in Atlanta. There's a young 23-year-old woman, a white woman named Ashley Bay, who organized for our campaign in Florence, South Carolina. She'd been working to organize a mostly African-American community since the beginning of this campaign. And one day she was at a roundtable discussion where everyone went around telling their story and why they were there. And Ashley said that when she was nine years old, her mother got cancer. And because she had to miss days of work, she was let go and lost her health care. They had to file for bankruptcy. And that's when Ashley decided that she had to do something to help her mom. She knew that food was one of their most expensive costs. And so Ashley convinced her mother that what she really liked and really wanted to eat more than anything else was mustard and relish sandwiches. Because that was the cheapest way to eat. That's the mind of a nine-year-old. She did this for a year until her mom got better. And so Ashley told everyone at the round table that the reason she had joined our campaign was so that she could help the millions of other children in the country who want and need to help their parents too. Now, Ashley might have made a different choice. Perhaps somebody told her along the way that the source of her mother's problems were blacks who were on welfare and too lazy to work, or Hispanics who were coming into the country illegally. But she didn't. She sought out allies in her fight against injustice. Anyway, Ashley finishes her story and then goes around the room and asks everyone else why they're supporting the campaign. They all have different stories and different reasons. Many bring up a specific issue. And finally, they come to this elderly black man who's been sitting there quietly the entire time. And Ashley asks him why he's there. 
And he doesn't bring up a specific issue. He does not say health care or the economy. He does not say education or the war. He does not say that he was there because of Barack Obama. He simply says to everyone in the room, I am here because of Ashley. I'm here because of Ashley. Now by itself, that single moment of recognition between that young white girl and that old black man is not enough. It is not enough to give health care to the sick or jobs to the jobless or education to our children. But it is where we start. It is where our union grows stronger. And as so many generations have come to realize over the course of the 221 years since a band of patriots signed that document right here in Philadelphia, that is where perfection begins. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so here we come full circle. We have Ashley's story, we have Obama's story, and we have the story of America. And really, this is an inside look at the campaign. He's ending on this personal note, a heartfelt note, this personal example, you know, from Obama. And then he links Ashley's story, you know, talking about the story of the mustard and relish sandwich. And he links her story then to what does enough really mean, right? So that moment of recognition between the old black man and the young white girl, that's not enough. It's not enough to give health care to the sick or jobs to the jobless, but that is where we start. So notice how he has framed this whole thing as, you know, this is not the ultimate thing. And this is, again, talking to that community that he has to have supporting him. He's saying, this isn't perfect. We're not even going to claim that this is perfect. This is just where we start. And this is where another unspecified word here, our union grows stronger. Whose union specifically? Is he talking about the union of American states? Is he talking about the union of the people in the room? Is he talking about a personal union? Is he talking about the union between him and Ashley or him and other you know, personal people? We don't know. But it's very, it's artfully vague, that ambiguous statement. This is where our union grows stronger. And in that way, he's able to really capture it and kind of close the loop, close the story arc from where he started at the beginning all the way to the end here where he finishes on that personal note. I think here also he does, he answers the question uh, that you posed earlier, uh, one of you, about does Obama know what he was doing when he was mentioning the Reagan coalition, et cetera, et cetera, and affirmative action? Because in this next section, he brings it up again, right? He says, you know, laziness because of welfare or, you know, people taking jobs, whatever, whatever. So he, he references that again in this context of this very important issue of this, of how Ashley's path could have been changed if she had bought into racial resentment. Right. So he knows precisely what he's doing. He also is attempting to give us a, a, a view into Obama's America. Again, it's multiracial. It's also a white woman and a black man, this older black man, 
Um, and that's very strategic as well. He did not want him to be a youthful, virile black man because we don't need to have images of more consummation. What he wanted was <laughs> this to be a multiracial, um, um, essentially multi-generational coalition around injustice, right? And that this white woman, dreamlike, um, like his mother, uh, who wants, you know, to explore the world, et cetera, et cetera, has certain ideas, who is open to others, right? And this older black man who also is open, he and Ashley have common ground, despite the fact that they are different um, in terms of age, as well as race, as well as gender. This is Obama's America. Um, but and so Obama is, is trying to continue, you know, he's balancing and trying to continue to build his core constituency, right? Women, people always talk about how women brought Obama to the presidency. Of course, when we drill down on those numbers, we understand that it was actually women of color who formed the larger block of his constituency. White women still voted uh, for the Republican candidate at a slightly larger number than they did for Obama. Um, so the idea when people say women, there's always this vision that there's a whole bunch of Ashley's. Um, there were enough Ashley's. And so Obama understood that strategically he needed about 42 percent of the white vote. Um, and so he is very, very I mean, he's being very politically savvy in this moment as he's closing out um, the speech. Well, I am wondering about, you know, one thing here, which is, you know, we're now. 12 years past this this speech you know some people call this obama's speech on race other people call it obama's speech on patriotism and you know disclaiming himself separating himself from reverend wright but we know that it was a very impactful speech and so how did obama's speech really change how has it changed the discourse on race you know in the past 12 years and does he bring something into the consciousness of voters of other races they might not have been aware of before? And so how did he succeed in closing the gap between the race between the races and in bringing them together and ushering in a new consciousness? You know, has that happened? You know, to what extent do we have it happened? Has there been a reaction and a counter reaction? You know, I'm just curious about this. Well, I definitely do believe that in the moment and certainly um the lift um, towards the presidency, the speech did what it was supposed to do. Um, it's certainly, although Obama never claimed to be post-racial, he certainly never shied away. He did not tell people not to say that. Um, but, um, and so in many respects, it ushered in a feel goodness around American politics, around American possibility and, um, and, you know, and progress. So I think at the moment, at the time, um, it, it worked. It did what it was supposed to do. Has it aged well? Um, certainly, uh, I think given the context that we're in today, um, the speech probably would not work today. Um, the resentments have been more hardened. Um, folks have certainly not, um, you know, uh, you know, you do have a Sanders, you know, candidacy that is a, attempting to still point uh, to those corporate structures, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, the fact that, you know, Biden is, of course, leading in the delegate count already tells you where people are leaning. Um, they don't necessarily want to they don't want a revolution. They would they just want somebody to tinker around the edges. Um, so so I don't you know, and in terms of, of, the, of the race question, 
Um, I think the resentments, as I said, have, have definitely hardened um, with respect to um, what Obama was trying, to, what, what Obama was going for and the idea of this kind of more inclusive American identity. And how did Obama do among the younger voters at that time? And again, this is 12 years ago. So how did he do among the younger voters of that time, you know, maybe the 18 to 25 range? And then so now, you know, at this point, those people would be, you know, um, 30 to 37. And so how did he do at that time? And do we see that those same people would would still vote in the same way? You know, has has it affected their consciousness you know, if not uh, the people with more solidified viewpoints. Right. I, I do. Yeah. I mean, certainly that demographic um, voted overwhelmingly for Obama. Um, they were quite active. Um, but I think what we saw, um, particularly if we, if we slice up the, the white electorate in interesting ways, um, what we saw is still educated white women still leaned um, towards the Republican candidate. And then, of course, we saw it in, you know, full in all its full colors with the face off with Hillary Clinton um, and, you know, how those voters, that particular cohort that would be, what, 37, like you said, whatever age um, they would be now, they, too, still voted, um, lean towards a Republican candidate. Um, so it. That gives you some idea of the texture of the way of how um, of how not I don't, I don't want to say I, I would say race and gender um, played out in uh, have played out 12 years later. All right. Um, well, everyone, I think that's all the time that we have for today. We'd like to thank our special guest, uh, Tracy Denian Sharpley Whiting, for joining us uh, here today. Thanks, Tracy. Thank you. Have a good one. Absolutely. And if you truly, you know, enjoy the show and we know that you do, please remember to support the show. You can find the link in the show notes. You can also go to our website at www.subliminallycorrect.com. Click that support us link. Take just a moment to do that. And um, you keep the show on the air. Keep it running, you know, moving forward. And also remember to tweet at us. You can do so by tweeting at SubliminalPod. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook, as well as rating us on iTunes. Five stars is always appreciated. And we will see you again next week. <laughs>